Welcome to Hope Community Podcast. It's great to have you join us today listening online. We pray you'll be impacted by our message this week. Enjoy. Uh, Charity is just the most beautiful soul. Uh, We've been friends for years now and she just walks in this humility where um, she just turns up, she just gives, she asks nothing in return. She just does what the Lord calls her to do and just blesses us. And that's all there is to it. And I just thought, what a beautiful person just to come and bless us in this way. Um, She shared a message on Thursday. I won't go into detail now, um, but at the simplest level, um, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, we've done a series in Exodus called Walking With God uh, from Exodus 32, 33, 34. And on Thursday in session one, Charity got up, not knowing that at all, and shared a message with us from Exodus 32, 33 and 34. And then the next day on our Align and Revive readings, the next three days were Exodus 34. So we just know that she's hearing the Lord, that she's in tune, that there's a unity in the Spirit here and that she's gonna come and bring a word from the Lord this morning. So can I invite you just to jump on your feet as we honour her and welcome her this morning. Good morning. I, I'm so thrilled to be here. Um, I love all of you, but even more, just the presence of God in this house. I'm like, I'm just so honoured. I would fly around the world to be in this atmosphere. It is amazing. And I really, um, I just have such a sense of revival over Brisbane. And, you know, we've been going to different churches in the region over the last few days. And it is just beautiful. The unity in the church and just the, the presence of God and what I feel like. And I felt it for years. I've always loved coming to Brisbane you know, we've talked about the hunger here, but what I have felt is like it is imminent. It is coming. And, uh, and there's things, you know, as I travel, I can just see things in a church. You know, you, I see wise leadership and I, I see pure hearts and like, yeah, this is a place I know that God will move. But as we were worshiping, I saw this picture of, it was like, our, our church service was a little tea party, and God the Father wanted to come and be a part of our tea party. And I just saw him coming, and everything was so miniature in comparison to him. And I saw him, like, trying to sit in this little chair, and it was like his thigh didn't, you know, it was, like, so small for him. And I just had this question that was, like, coming up in my spirit, will you build a, a seat for him that's big enough to hold him? And it's like, it's not that you have to be more than you are, but will you just build a place where he can come and rest? And so I'm so excited. And and when I was praying into what I was to share today, um, I really felt like the the Lord uh, just laid on my heart the the message. It's one of the, the core messages for me. It's something that is a core of who I am. And it actually, I just published my first book and it's the core of my book. 
And unfortunately, I've sold out. It's available on our Global Awakening bookstore or on Amazon. I have one copy left, so I can show you the cover. It's called A Heart Like Jesus, Encountering Revival Through Humility and Service. And um, I really feel like I'm here today to be a recruiter. So sorry, if you came to just receive, that's not going to be the day today. I'm calling you into something. Um, but, but this book, it's gonna, what I'm preaching today is the, the core of this book. It also has um, just the practical insights because I've, just, I've been with Global Awakening for 17 years. I've been in ministry, you know, went through ministry school with them. And it's been an honor and it's been glory and it is also tiring. And, you know, there's just the reality of what it is to serve Jesus, whether you're in the church or the marketplace in all of it, we all serve Jesus. We're all expanding the kingdom of God. And there are times when we want to give up. And so I wrote this book really to give the heart of what, who Jesus is and where to be like him. And then also talk about some of the practical things, the challenges that come because of serving and uh, things that kind of take us out of it. And also the, um, the benefits that we're not expecting and some of the just blessings we get because we serve. And so I do have the, the opportunity to give this one away. And I wanted to honor Peter, who has been serving the global team this week. So if you want to come up, Peter. He didn't know what he was signing up for. <laughs> and I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much. How many of you want the revival that's coming? You want more of Jesus. How, about, how many of you want to see your neighbors who don't know Jesus knowing Jesus? And you want to see God do amazing things. Well, I grew up um, in a Christian home. Uh, Peter was asking me this morning, how did you get saved? And I said, well, I think I was th about three years old at my mother's knee. I actually don't even remember. But I grew up in a Christian family, and um, we would watch TV evangelists, and I would watch people getting healed and people having words of knowledge, and I just thought that was so cool, and I wanted to be like that. And so I would go to bed at night, and I would daydream about being this amazing Christian, and everybody would be impressed with me. And uh, God, it's so funny to me, because I, I think if I, my nieces or my nephews said, man, I want to be a great Christian, because I want everyone to be impressed, I would have a, a sit-down conversation about the heart of the gospel and, you know, the right character and the right nature. And God never did that with me. What he did is as I was daydreaming about being a great Christian, he said, if this is what you want, this is not the way to get it. And I just had this knowledge. I had to get out of my bed, get on my knees, and begin to pray. And that's how I really began to develop a relationship with the Lord. It started with a desire to be what I saw in others, but then it came through this relationship with Jesus. We don't go after greatness for our own sake so that people can be impressed with us. We go after him. And that's how we become great in the kingdom. And so we see Matthew 18. It's kind of the same situation that Jesus had with his disciples. And so I want to look at Matthew 18 starting in verse 1. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, one of the things I love about the Bible is that we don't just have one testimony of Jesus, but we have four different testimonies, four perspectives, four different people telling us about these stories and telling us what happened. And so Mark tells a very similar story, but he tells it just a little bit different. He remembers it differently than Matthew. And as Mark is telling the story, he says, and they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So Matthew has the story like the disciples come to Jesus, Rabbi, who is the greatest? Like this hypothetical teach us. And Mark is like, well, actually, Jesus is the one who turns to them and says, what were you guys talking about? And then if you've ever caught your kids or you've ever been the kid that was caught getting in trouble and you just go silent because you're like, I am not going to incriminate myself right now. This is the disciples there. They went silent because they knew they were arguing and he was not going to be happy with that. But Jesus, he didn't correct his disciples for wanting to be great. What he did is he said, let me show you what that greatness looks like. If this is what you want, this is the argument, let me show you. And he pulled a child in and he said, this is what greatness looks like. And he started to change our perception, change their perception and our perception of what true greatness is. And scripture doesn't tell us why they were arguing, but it does lay out a series of events that happened. So whether this is the actual progression of events or not, this is, these are the kinds of things that they were experiencing. Um, in Matthew 10, Jesus had commissioned his disciples and sent them out, and he said, Pre, you know, declare that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, raise the dead. And they come back and they're rejoicing because demons obey at the name of Jesus. And again, he, he redirects them. Don't rejoice in the miracles. Don't rejoice in the authority. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. He's always redirecting us to the things that actually matter. And so they were commissioned, it worked, but man, it's our relationship with Jesus that matters. And so, you know, these are the disciples of the star rising rabbi. They're looking at him. People are wondering, is this the Messiah? Is this the one who's going to come and set us free from the oppression of Rome? And uh, there's large crowds following Jesus and these fishermen and tax collectors and everyday people, you know, kind of the country People, these are not the city, the educated, these are the country people. And all of a sudden, they have around them fame and they recognize there's going to be authority, there's a power here, and I get to be a part of this. And before this argument breaks out, we have the, the encounter where Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And here he has a revelation of who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. He's the one that's been prophesied that they've been waiting for. And they recognize he is the one. But their perception of that one is that he's going to come in and disrupt all of the government. And he's going to establish a new kingdom where Israel is no longer going to be oppressed by Rome. And he's going to be the king. And now he's going to need a new cabinet. He's going to need some advisors. And who wants to, be, you know, there's, there's one left seat and there's one right seat, and I want it, right? They want to be great in his kingdom. They just don't understand what his kingdom is. And then before this encounter happens, there is a day when Jesus 
He has 12 disciples, but he, he leaves nine disciples at the base of a mountain, and he takes three, Peter, James, and John. He takes them up the mountain. And as they're on the mountaintop having this like small group time, the intimate fellowship with his, his people, all of a sudden now Moses and Elijah are there. And there's the Mount of Transfiguration, and they see the, the Christ, whom they already know is the Messiah. They see him transfigured, and they see him in his glory. And all of a sudden, like, they are having the most incredible encounter of their life. They hear the audible voice of God. They see the glory cloud overshadowing them. And as they come down from the mountain, Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone what you've seen. Like sometimes there are glory encounters we're not allowed to talk about. And they come down to the base of the mountain and the other nine disciples are there and they're trying to cast a demon out of a boy. And as they're, they're doing this, they're, they are not successful. And so the father comes to Jesus and says, your, your disciples, I came to them and it's not working. Will you heal my son? And Jesus makes a statement, oh, twisted, faithless generation. How long must I be with you? And he sets the boy free. And then all 12 disciples begin to walk towards Capernaum. And an argument breaks out about who is the greatest. So who do you think was the greatest? The scripture doesn't tell us, but do you think it was the nine who just failed publicly and were rebuked publicly? Or do you think it was the three who just had the most glorious encounter of their lives? We need to be careful when we have an encounter with the glory of God that we do not allow pride to come in. And so they're, they're in this place of having an argument and Jesus is redirecting their thinking. He says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that word turn, it, it isn't just, um, it's changing your course of action, but it is also changing the way that you think. It, it's changing your mindset. So he's saying, if, unless you turn and change the way that you're thinking about greatness, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and he said, unless you become um, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so if we want to enter in, and entering, it's not just walking past Peter at the pearly gates, right? Entering is beginning to experience something. It's entering into an experience of the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven, for the Jewish mindset, they were not looking at after they died. The kingdom of heaven was the establishing of the kingdom of God on earth, the rule and reign of God. So for us, that is, if we want to experience heaven on earth, if we want to see cancer healed, if we want to see healings, if we want to see um, salvations breaking out all around us, if we want revival, if we want the kingdom of heaven to be established, we need to change the way that we think about greatness. Because if we are seeking our own kingdoms, if we are trying to be the best in the kingdom and we have the biggest seat and the biggest title and the biggest church or whatever that looks like for us personally, if we're seeking those things, then we will not enter in. We will not receive the kingdom of heaven. But if we can change the way we think about greatness, if we can become like the child, the one who's the least in the room, the one who is dependent on their father, they're dependent and, and teachable, and, and they recognize, I have nothing to bring in this moment, but I am here, and I'm willing to receive. I'm willing to learn. And unless we do change the way that we think about greatness and, and 
step out of the world's idea of greatness and begin to live as true uh, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We have to live according to the kingdom of heaven if we want to see the kingdom of heaven. And so what does the world think about greatness? A number of years ago, they asked millennials, what is your number one goal? And this is from the United States. But 81% of them said that their number one goal was getting rich. 51% said that the same thing about being famous. So the idea of the world, if to be great, is to be rich and famous. And, you know, we see this when we, we talk about Alexander the Great. He's the great military leader, right, taking over all the, the nations. Or you have Muhammad Ali, if you guys are familiar with Muhammad Ali and his message, I am the greatest. You know, it's the athlete who's winning everything. And this is what the world thinks of greatness. Jesus, though, gives us a different model of greatness. And so if we really want to begin to see heaven on earth, we need to press into the model of Jesus. And, and you know, there, he makes this statement, Jesus makes this statement, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So then the question becomes, how do you humble yourself? And I remember asking myself this question, like, how do I humble myself? Do I just you know, take the lower position. What does this look like? I, I wrestled with this as a kid. And I remember a, a time when my dad said, pride is a tricky thing. If I was humble, I would be proud of it. And we have this, this tendency, especially in the church, we know we're supposed to be humble. And so we, we wear our humility with a great deal of pride. And we, we walk around like I, and we look, you know, <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to say this. <laughs> but, but, you know, Americans have a, a reputation for being bold and, and loud and, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, and Australians and most of the world is like, oh, I'm glad I'm not like the Americans who are bold and loud. And, and, but there is this thing about recognizing, like, you know, there, there's just this element of, I'm glad I'm not like them, you know, and it's the pride in our humility. And, you know, it, it's a tricky thing. How do we really humble ourselves? How do we genuinely, in the sight of God, in the sight of heaven, walk with humility? Because it doesn't matter what nation we're from. It doesn't matter what nation we're from. We are human beings and we have the, the trappings of a fallen humanity that we have to wrestle with and we need salvation from. And so... Jesus gives us the greatest example of humility that has ever been shown was when God came to the earth. And I want to look at Philippians 2 as the example of humility. Because if this is the key to seeing revival, and this is the key to uh, beginning to enter into this place where we want cancer-free zones, then we have to understand what does it look like to humble ourselves. Philippians 2, verse 3, it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And, and he's not saying you need to feel sorry for yourself. He's saying, you know, it, but it, it's honoring the other person. Do nothing from selfish ambition. I am not here to preach because I need my name to be known. 
right? I am here to preach because you are more significant and your life is worth the journey around the world so that I can preach the truth of the gospel and you can receive something from Jesus. And your life is significant and so I'm willing to give my life. We're to follow that model of Christ. We pour ourselves out, not for selfish ambition, but because we see the need of someone else. And then verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, he's not saying that you can't look to your own interests. There's a reality that your family needs to be provided for. But he is saying, look to the interests of others above your own interests. Like, life, your life is not about you. What are the needs around you? And we have this natural inclination that's built into us when we become parents, that all of a sudden you're willing to give everything. All of a sudden life isn't about me now, it is about making sure this child's raised. And, and Richie did such a beautiful job talking about this the other night, what it is, that heart of a father that is just everything becomes about the other. And this is what Paul is saying is the model that Christ gave us and how we are to live our lives. He goes on in verse 5. He says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Being in very nature God. Jesus was God from the beginning. It's who he was. He was God. He's fully God, and he is fully man. So people on the earth, they saw him as fully man. But underneath that human flesh, he is the full divine nature in him. And he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. I used to read that and think it was like a reaching out, grasping for something. He was reaching out to attain it, but he did not have to attain divinity. He had it from before the foundation of the earth. He is the pre-existent God. From, from the very beginning and before the beginning, he was God. John says that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus did not have to reach out to attain his divinity, but he did not have to hold on to, he did not have to grasp his divinity. He did not have to grasp his identity. He willingly let go of all of the privileges that come with being divine, and he willingly veiled his divinity in his humanity. He was willing to hide who he was. When he walked on the earth, nobody knew that he was God. He was fully God. And yet they looked at him and they saw a carpenter's son. And they saw a rabbi. And they began to see, ah, oh, this could be the Messiah. But at no point did his mother or his brothers or his disciples say, look, he's God. Nobody ever fully recognized who he was. And yet he loved and he walked and he humbled himself. Verse 7 says, he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant and being found and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The God of the universe, the one who spoke everything that is, and it's still being created, like the, the universe is still expanding. His word has that kind of power. He became his very creation. Wayne Grudem calls this, he's a theologian, he says, this is the greatest miracle in all of scripture. Greater than the resurrection from the dead, greater than the blind eyes seeing, is when the infinite God became a finite man. And he walked on this earth and he limited himself. He was limited in his place of where he was. He was limited. He, he submitted to the Father and the Holy Spirit and became dependent on them even while being God. 
And we don't understand it. We can't grasp it. And yet he humbled himself. And he came, and he didn't come to a great palace. When the, the wise men from the east came looking for the king of the Jews, where did they go? They went to Herod's palace because that's where you find a king. But that's not where he was. Instead, he was born in a, a manger and he was born in a feeding trough, laid in a feeding trough. And this is the king of glory. And he did not need to be, you know, he didn't need all the bells and whistles. He didn't need the air conditioning and the carpet. He was willing to come to humble circumstances. And God is still coming and he's still showing up in humble circumstances. He's showing up in places that nobody else wants to go because there's people there who long for him and want to know him. And here is a God who not only did he come into humble circumstances, but he lived a humble life. He was a carpenter. He worked with his hands. He wasn't a political leader. He wasn't the religious leader. He was just a carpenter. And then he began to preach, and he began to preach the kingdom of heaven at hand and demonstrate it. And as he began to declare who he was, it got him in a lot of trouble, and they crucified him. And the king of glory went to the cross, and it was the worst kind of torture the world could devise. The worst of man came upon our God. Holy. And he willingly went. This is what humility looks like when we're willing to give our lives for the, not just because, I mean, he didn't give his life just because people wanted to take his life. There were times people picked up stones and they tried to kill him and he just walked away. So it's not like we have to lay down and die every time people get mad at us. It's not allowing abuse in our lives, but it is coming into a partnership with God. Jesus said, the father loves me because I, I give my life. Nobody takes it from me, but I give it of my own accord. We give our lives in obedience to the Father, and we don't worry about the, the consequence or the, the we worried about the consequence. That's why we do it. We don't worry about the cost because we're following after him. And because Jesus was willing to go to the cross, he was willing to humble himself. It says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and so Jesus humbled himself and God exalted him and he gave us the model that we are to follow after because even though we are not to um, we aren't to die for the sins of the world right there's only one God there is only one atoning sacrifice in Jesus Christ but he does give us this call to follow after him and that that is picking up our cross and following him. And he also gives us a promise that those who humble themselves will be exalted. There comes a moment when we get humility correct, there will be a day when the, God is going to exalt us and all of a sudden people will see because he likes to put uh, pure hearts on display. And so we can't shy away when that time for exaltation comes. You're not allowed to run away. I'm sorry. I've tried. It doesn't work, right? It, it's like, for some of us, some of us, you know, we, we, some people love the platform and humility for them looks like, oh, I need to stay hidden. But there's a lot of us, if you're like me, like you love to be hidden anyway. And I remember there was a day where I was sitting at home and I was being a great Christian and I was just praying this awesome Christian prayer. And I was like, Jesus, I don't need to be on the platform. Now, Nobody wanted me on the platform. There were no invitations coming. I don't know why I prayed that. But I was like, I don't need to be on the platform. 
I, Lord, I'll just serve you. I'll stay hidden. And it sounded like this awesome Christian prayer full of humility in my mind. But that false humility thing, right? And the, the Lord asked me a question. And he said, Charity, what if I want you on the platform? And all of a sudden, I was like, oh. And I realized I was offering him what I wanted. Because I'm shy, and I'm quiet, and I like to stay hidden. And sometimes humility looks like staying hidden, but there are times when, when you need to stand up in front of the lights, and you need to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. You need to allow the Lord to bless you in business and make you stand out, not for your glory, but for his, so that you have a platform to preach the name of Jesus Christ and enough influence that people will actually listen. And, and God wants to exalt the humble, and so we need to follow after the example of who our God is. And you see, when Jesus came and he died and he, he lived this humble life, he was showing us who God the Father is. He is the exact representation of God the Father. And we see this beautiful picture of the Trinity where each one loves the other one and gives of himself for the other. Uh, one, one of the... the theologians I was reading, he said the Trinity is mutual self-giving love. That's the definition of the Trinity. Each one mutually gives of himself fully out of love. And we see this beautiful picture where Jesus humbles himself in order to glorify the Father. And then the Father glorifies the Son. And then when he does, the Son glorifies the Father. And we see the same thing in the relationship between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. There's a moment where Jesus says, it's better for you that I go. Because if I don't go, the Holy Spirit won't come. And Jesus is honoring the Holy Spirit. But what happens when the Holy Spirit comes? When the Holy Spirit comes, he leads us back to Jesus. And he leads us back to the Father. And there is no, you know, no jogging for the position. None, you know, the Father's not up there saying, I have to maintain my position here. I have to be the Father. And I can't let the sun rise up too much or he might take my position. Each one mutually gives of himself and lifts the other one up. And this is what we're called to do. This is who we're called to imitate. And there's a reason why Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples by your love. It's because it's the very nature of who our God is. If you want to represent Jesus on the earth, you will look like love. And love isn't just something you feel. Love is something that demonstrates itself in action. And when Jesus talked about, you know, when, when I was thirsty, you brought me water. When I was in prison, you came and you visited me. These are actions of, of service that we do for one another. And it's the demonstration of love. Because love does something for others. If you love someone, you are going to act on it. If, you're, if you say, I love you, but then you, you know, I think this is in James. If you say you love your brother and he's in need and you walk away and just say, well, I'll pray for you, but you don't actually help him, do you really love? They'll know we're his disciples because we love one another. Because this is who he is. And the Lord gave me this message, the message of my book, the message, just this message of servanthood and humility. And I will say, I did not want to write the book. It took me 11 years. I worked on it slowly over time. And, uh, but I'm busy. And I was like, Jesus, nobody's going to want to read a book on serving and giving your life away. We know you were supposed to do it. 
But when we're laying down our money and taking time to read a book, you know, people want to read about how to be great. Tell me how I can become a great leader. I'll be a great servant leader. As long as servant is the adjective and leader is the noun, I'm good with it. Right? And so I just, I was hesitant. And the Lord said, Charity, revival is coming. And what is coming is so big that every person is needed. We have to get this message. The Lord, about 20 years ago, he gave me a vision. And I was um, approaching a shoreline. And as I stepped out of the boat with Jesus, I saw fruit all over the shore. And it was just like massive fruit. And there was this orange that was so big. It was like six stories high. This is not something you hold in your hand. It was just massive. And I remember looking at it like, uh... Like, what do, you, what do you do with that? I don't, I don't even know where you start peeling something like that, like, to enjoy the fruit. And the Lord said, you're going to need some help. And all of a sudden, the picture changed, and there was a bulldozer. And I saw that it was, like, with the biggest piece of equipment we could find. And all, you know, all the people, all the help, the biggest piece of equipment, we still struggled to bring in the harvest and to steward what, what was being poured out. And I know that there is something coming, and I feel it on Brisbane. I feel it on this church. I feel it very strongly on this church. And what I felt like was um, as wonderful as your leadership team is, they're, you know, they're wise, they're pure. The, the worship is incredible. It's why you're here, right? It's an amazing community. Well, God's going to pour out his blessing on it. And no matter how wonderful the leadership team is, every person has their limit and breaking point. And this is not something where the people get to just enjoy while the pastoral team does the work of the ministry, right? It is, God gave us gifts. He gave us apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. We are all being called in. This is where I said, you don't just get to sit and receive today, but I'm actually recruiting you into something because when revival pours out, just think about the day of Pentecost, Right? The day of Pentecost, 120 people are gathered together praying. And it's this beautiful church group. 120 people are praying. The Holy Spirit comes and pours upon them. And all of a sudden, Peter stands up and he preaches a message. And the evening service has 3,120 people. And it doesn't stop there. Right, Every day, they're adding to their numbers. And there's thousands being added. What happens? Like, this looks like a nice full group, and like it's a healthy, lovely church and great systems. But what happens when God comes crashing in, and all of a sudden you go and you preach at, at IKEA, and 10 people get saved, and your neighbor did the same thing, and all of a sudden people are flooding in, and there's all these baby Christians that need to be raised up. And we're putting a strain on the bathroom facilities. And so all of a sudden, now toilet paper rolls need to be changed. And all of a sudden, light bulbs are burning out because there's so much happening at the church. And there's just, you know, the reality of what it is to raise up disciples in Christ. And, and you know, you have families. You know what it is. Every time you have a child, there's, there's more expense. There's more just the practical reality. In, in Scripture, they had to get deacons to help because there was a breaking point for the apostles. And it, this is going to be something so massive. Holy. It is something so big that every one of you is needed. You are not, um, you're not a spectator. You're not. God has a purpose for you. There is a purpose why you're here. There is a purpose. And if this isn't your home church, it's true of your home church too. They need your help. 
to bring in the harvest. It's not about, you know, the person who's the leader and the person who serves. No, we're in this together. We are the body of Christ. And there is a kingdom of heaven to expand. There is a kingdom. There's a church to be built. And our lives are to be spent enjoying one another, loving one another, and building the kingdom of God. And so this morning, I just want to invite you into this opportunity to serve the Lord wherever you're at in a place of humility, holy. And I feel like the Lord wants to invite you. It's that recruiter. I'm telling you what's coming is going to be amazing. But we need to build that chair that's big enough for him to come and sit in, right? Because it needs to, and it's going to take all of us. So if you are willing to be one of the people that says, Jesus, here am I, use me. The picture he gave me the other day was just this ant community, right? Who's carrying something so much bigger than them. But all of them together can carry it. And so if you're willing to be one of the people that helps carry it, whatever that looks like, I want to invite you to stand where you're at. And, and you know, this is a real thing. So if, if you are like, I don't know, it's okay, stay seated. But Lord, you see the hearts of your people. And I pray, Father, that you would grace us and you would gift us with encounters with the living God, that we would look upon your face. We would look upon your face and we would be transformed into your image. I pray that the body of Christ in Brisbane, the body of Christ in Burpengary would be transformed into the image of Christ, that we would love one another, not because we know we have to. If it starts there, Lord, fine, but then let your grace come upon us. Let your love come upon us. Holy, that we will love as you love that we will look beyond the fence. We will look beyond the hurt, Father. We will look beyond the sin in people's lives and we will see the value of each human life. Holy God, I pray that you would pour out grace and I pray that you would pour out vision. Speak to people this morning about what their role is. Father, I pray that you would show them where they can serve, where they can train, what they're, they're called to so they can begin to equip themselves, get trained, get, you know, if your role is to prophesy, you need to get training in prophecy. If your role is to help um, mow the grass, the Lord, you know, we, there's things we need to begin to do. If God wants to come and says, I want your business, will you give me your business because I want to have a move of God in this place. Father, I pray right now that you would fill the businesses, that you would fill offices. And I pray that there would be offices where people step in, that there would be shops where people step in and it would be like stepping into the glory of God. And they would say, what is that? And Father, I just declare over this region, just the revival story where there were times in the United States where revival was so great, the glory of God was so great, ships would come into the harbor and men on the ships would begin to fall in repentance and get on their knees. And when they came to shore, they would send for a preacher saying, how can we be saved? Father, I pray that the glory of God would come, that you would come and visit this house, that you would come to our tea party, God. We invite you. This is so so small and what we're doing is we know it's nothing in comparison to your majesty and your glory but we invite you and I pray that you would give wisdom to leaders I pray that there would be vision for each of us to know how to build a seat that is big enough for you to come Lord holy
is I pray that you would take hearts in your hand right now. And Lord, that you would begin to touch places where they've been hurt, where they've not been honored, where they have been um, overlooked, passed over for promotions, where children have spoken um, not with honor. Lord, parents that have been dishonored, I, I just ask for your grace, Lord, your love, that we would have grace in our hearts to forgive. And I pray where people have received dishonor that you would come and you would honor them, that you would lift people up. And Lord, I pray for a grace for humility because we cannot do it in our own strength. Oh, Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. I pray that you do a work in this house and in this region. And I pray that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. And as we close out the service today, we want to pray for you. And I, I know there's practical things, so you may need to go home and you're welcome to do that. You may need to pick your children up. But if you have time to receive from the Lord, I'm going to invite my global team to come across the front. And we are here because we want to pray for you. So if you want to come and receive ministry in regards to the message I shared, I invite you to come. Um, but also if there's other needs, if you have physical needs, we want to pray for your healing. If you just need a touch from the Lord, then I invite you to come forward because we're here to minister to you. Thanks so much for listening to Hope Community Podcasts. We hope you enjoyed today's message and remember to subscribe to the channel to keep up to date. From everyone here at Hope Community, have the best week.